Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt, for those of you who I haven't met. Uh, and we are in the middle of a series on practicing the way of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 2, verse 1, the second page in your Bibles. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, each week in this series, we've been unpacking a different spiritual practice or spiritual discipline that we can engage in as disciples of Jesus to make us more like him. Uh, As disciples of Jesus, the point of our lives is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus would do if he were you. Uh, And notice that um, practicing the way of Jesus or taking on Jesus' lifestyle and habits and rhythms uh, was actually central to first century discipleship. The invitation was never simply to believe in Jesus and go back to living our everyday over-busy, stressed-out lives. The invitation was always to follow Jesus and to do life the way he would do it, which, it turns out, is actually the best way to live. Jesus himself says it this way. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of us feel weary How many of us feel burdened? How many of us need that deep soul rest right in the middle of our over-busy lives? Well, the answer is that all of us do. And Jesus comes with this invitation to take on his yoke, to learn from him. And while the weary and burdened thing probably resonates deeply with many of us, uh, this uh, imagery of a yoke is often more or less lost on us in the modern age. Uh, But in the first century, every rabbi had two things. Uh, First off, they had apprentices, or what we commonly call disciples, people who came along to apprentice under them. And secondly, they had a yoke. Now, uh, this yoke wasn't literal, 
But in the first century, a yoke was a common idiom for a rabbi's way of teaching the Torah. Or, or even more broadly than that, it was his set of teachings on how to be human. It was uh, his way of shouldering the sometimes crippling burden of life itself. Marriage, divorce, prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, jobs, kids, paying the bills, your class load, all of it. And most of us didn't grow up on a farm, but you can visualize two oxen who are yoked together uh, plowing a field or pulling a cart or a load. A yoke is how you shoulder a load. And what makes Jesus unique isn't that he had a yoke. Every rabbi did. What makes Jesus unique is that he offers an easy yoke. He offers a way of shouldering life's burdens that is actually easy. And notice that Jesus isn't offering escape. He doesn't say, hey, come away with me and escape or ignore all of life's burdens. What he offers instead is equipping. Let me equip you to shoulder life's burdens in such a way that you're taking life head on, but you're doing it in an entirely new way that makes the burden feel light. And this morning's practice is um, critical, it is central to experiencing life in this way. Uh, Today, we are going to unpack the practice of the Sabbath, and as we do, I think you'll see why it's so integral to experiencing the easy yoke. We pick up on page two of your Bibles. Uh, In the first chapter of Scripture, we uh, witness God in the midst of breathtaking creative activity, bringing forth new life and new creatures over the course of six days. On the sixth day, at the end of chapter one, God creates humanity, which is the pinnacle of his creative activity, but... It's not the pinnacle of the week. Check this out. This is Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The climax of the week is actually the final day. The seventh day, it's rest. God rested. Do you ever think about that? Did God need to rest? Did God actually get tired? Can God actually get tired? God rested. 
And it says that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And as Americans, uh, we typically blow past all of this stuff. Wow, a day of rest, nothing happens, skim that section, let's get back to the action. But seen through ancient eyes, this is an incredible moment. In the ancient world, uh, deity existed in the heavenly realms. Uh, But God, or the gods, depending on which ancient culture you were a part of, uh, met with humanity in sacred space. So you would go to a, a temple or a sacred site, and that was the meeting place between deity and humanity. Space was sacred. And so you'd make a pilgrimage to a sacred space. But notice what God does in the beginning. God blesses a day, a period of time, and makes a day holy. Meaning that instead of doing a pilgrimage up to a temple or a sacred space, you can actually meet with this God in sacred time. In a special time, a a holy time, which is set apart and distinct from all other times. It is almost a temple in time, which God will inhabit with you. You don't just meet this God in a sacred space. You also meet with this God in sacred time, the seventh Day, the day of rest, the day when creating and working ceases and we slow down and we rest in God. The seventh day um, actually became known as the Sabbath day. Uh, And Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop. So the Sabbath is a day, the seventh day. Uh, It's also a verb. It means to stop or to cease your work. Fast forward for thousands of years, and um, as the Israelites are being freed from slavery in the book of Exodus, God gives them uh, ten commandments, which we call the Ten Commandments. These uh, are essential rules that they were to live by as part of the covenant that they're forming with God. And one of the ten, in fact, the longest of the ten, is all about the Sabbath day. It says this. It says, remember the Sabbath day or don't forget the stopping day. By keeping it holy, distinct, set apart, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. And on it goes from there. The longest commandment is all about stopping for one entire day every week for rest and worship. And ironically, We need the reminder because for some bizarre reason, we really don't want to rest. We want to feel rested. 
But we don't want to stop. We don't want to cease our work. The Israelites received this commandment as they were being freed from 400 years of slavery. To be clear, slaves don't get Sabbaths. They don't Shabbat. They don't stop. They don't cease. They work all day, every day, until they die. If there was any group of people in the world who should be dying to take a Sabbath day, it it is this group of people. And yet, uh, there's something in the heart of fallen humanity that seems to fight this. Uh, We fight the Sabbath. We push it off. We want to work longer. We want to work harder. We want to take our survival into our own hands instead of trusting in God's provision, instead of stopping and ceasing and entering his rest, being human before God. But notice, who made the seven-day work week? It wasn't us. It's not a human invention. It was God. God built a seven-day rhythm into the heart of creation itself. Six days of work, one day of rest. It's in the grain of the universe. And we can deny that and fight that and reject that But when you run against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. John Mark notes, he says this, uh, The last time a society tried to abandon the seven-day work week was during the revolution in France. They switched to a 10-day work week to up productivity, as in nine days on, one day off. And disaster The economy crashed, the suicide rate skyrocketed, and productivity, it went down. It's been proven in study after study, there is zero correlation between hurry and productivity. Next slide. In fact, once you work a certain number of hours in a week, your productivity plummets. Want to know what the number is? 50 hours. Ironic, that's about a six-day work week. One study found that there was zero difference in productivity between workers who logged 70 hours and those who logged 55. We long to enter God's rest. We're hungry for it, and yet at the same time, we fight against it. We fight the Sabbath rhythm. We fight the invitation. We struggle against entering in. And one of our chief problems is hurry. We are addicted to speed. 
In fact, this sense of speed and hurry and rush has increased so dramatically in the Western world that now psychologists and mental health professionals have coined the term hurry sickness. Some of you have heard that before. And they treat it like a disease. Here are some definitions that might help diagnose whether or not you have this disease. Hurry sickness is a pattern of behavior characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. A malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Or, my favorite definition, a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Welcome to life as we know it. Here are some symptoms of hurry sickness. Listen to this. You move from one checkout line to another at the grocery store because the line looks faster. Number two, you count the cars in each lane as you come to a red light and move to the lane that has less cars. Amen. Number three, you multitask to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. And an awkward silence falls over the crowd. I would ask who suffers from this, but I think it would be easier to ask who doesn't suffer from this. And yet, here is what hurry sickness produces in us. Irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, workaholism, or just nonstop activity, for those of you who don't like work, emotional numbness, out-of-order priorities, lack of care for your body, escapist behaviors, slippage of spiritual disciplines, and isolation. This is the byproduct of a life of speed and hurry and moving 90 miles an hour with no time to rest. And notice that this looks nothing like Jesus. Nothing. This list describes someone who is the exact opposite of Jesus. He he displayed none of these things that so characterize life in speed. Hurry kills all that we love. Hurry it's been said, is incompatible with love, joy, and peace. They do not go together. It is the great enemy of life with God. Dallas Willard, one of the spiritual giants of the last hundred years, was once asked by John Ortberg, who many would also consider a spiritual giant, John said, what do I need to do to become the person God wants me to be? And after a long silence, Willard answered, 
You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, John says, what else? Another long silence. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. But how do we go about that? Is there a a practice from the way of Jesus that might break our addiction to speed, that might cure our hurry sickness? Is there a practice that could shift our souls back toward spiritual health? And one answer among many is the Sabbath. When you look at Jesus, you see this practice everywhere in his life. Jesus practiced the Sabbath, an entire day out of every week set aside for rest and worship. Jesus defended the true heart behind the Sabbath, and Jesus led his disciples in practicing the Sabbath for themselves. And when he's questioned about the Sabbath, he says, quote, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning, you can't slip into legalism here. Okay? You are not a slave to the Sabbath. That was the Pharisees' problem. That's not our problem. Their problem was thinking that they were made to serve the Sabbath. Our problem is forgetting that the Sabbath was made for us. The Sabbath is a gift for you and for me. It is to be practiced, to be received as a gift. And this practice, when received and celebrated, actually changes the way that we live our lives. It breaks our addiction to speed. It begins to cure us of our hurry sickness because people who Sabbath live all seven days differently. Let me say that again. People who Sabbath for one day a week live all seven days differently. And here's why. A Sabbath is not a day off Uh, It's not a day to run errands and to fix things around the house and to mow the lawn and to catch up on laundry while you're watching Netflix. It's an entire day set aside for rest and worship, to, to Shabbat, to cease, to stop. On the Sabbath, we slow down. We come off the drug of speed. We allow our nerves to unwind and breathe and rest. We enjoy God and all that he's given us. We move slow. And when you first start this practice, 
it's really hard. Entering the Sabbath is like trying to stop a freight train. You, you, you don't realize that you're moving 90 miles an hour until you attempt to come to a stop. When I first started practicing the Sabbath, I would spend most of the day just trying to get my mind and my body to slow down. I would start in the morning, and all day I would be slamming on the brakes until about 5 p.m. when my mind and my body would slowly come to a place of stopping, to a place of rest. And I'd usually have about two hours of calm before I ate dinner and then started ramping up again, frantically trying to get back up to 90 miles an hour. My um, entry into the Sabbath and my exit from the Sabbath were forceful, violent things. And over time, it forced me to slow down my overall pace of life. You cannot live at 90 miles an hour and then come crashing into the Sabbath and then come screaming back out the other side. It doesn't work. You, you, you can't live life that way. And so over time, I realized that it made more sense to live life at 40 miles an hour and then slowly wind down as I saw the Sabbath approaching, as it was on the horizon, and then to Shabbat, to come to a place of rest, to enter the Sabbath with joy, to receive it as a gift, and at the end of those 24 hours, to gently exit the Sabbath and ease my way back in to a 40-mile-an-hour life. And that's a hard adjustment to make. When I first uh, started practicing the Sabbath, I was in law school, uh, which is usually ranked the most demanding doctorate degree uh, that you can pursue. The uh, hours were crazy. The competition was fierce. Uh, the workload was unrelenting. It was nonstop. And we were grinding away hour after hour, day after day, for years, many of us without a break. Just for me to take Sunday mornings away from that grind to gather with the church was like crazy in the eyes of my classmates. But the problem was, in the midst of all of this speed and pressure and relentless work, most of us were gaining the whole world and losing our souls in the process. About halfway through law school, I got to the place where I was racked with anxiety, which eventually led into depression, and over time, my anxiety and my depression became so bad that I actually became suicidal. My life became a living hell. If I had had the means of taking my own life in that period, I probably would have. 
which is a scary thing to think in, in hindsight. And I could barely sleep at night, and I was beyond exhausted during the day, but I just kept grinding away. I didn't want to slow down. I didn't want to fall behind. I wanted to stay at the front of the pack. I couldn't afford to stop. And in the midst of that struggle, my pastor at the time, John Mark, released a book called My Name is Hope, uh, which is all about uh, anxiety and depression. And I read the book, and there was one line from that book uh, that, that changed my life, that really stood out to me and struck a chord. It said, if you're working 80 hours a week and you're not taking a Sabbath, you're going to feel depressed. It will crush your soul. And, and it just clicked in that moment. And, and right in the middle of law school, amid all the insane pressure and competition, I started to Sabbath. And it started with just a few hours on a Saturday morning. Uh, and then slowly over time, I began to expand that practice until all of Saturday became a Sabbath day. But I started this practice... Because for me, it was literally life and death. And the amazing thing was that I was just as productive or even more productive as I began this practice. And as I got better and better at practicing the Sabbath over time, I slowly started to feel human again. I remembered that I am not a machine. In fact, there are few things on earth more humanizing than the Sabbath. Or in the words of Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man. It's for us. It's in the grain of the universe it's in the life and practices of Jesus. It makes us more human. And few things bring me greater joy week in and week out than practicing the Sabbath. Uh, if you are ready to start engaging in this practice, here's a snapshot of what it looks like in our lives for me and, and my family. Uh, first off, if you're taking notes, uh, the Sabbath is something you prepare for. Or in the words of Scripture, they'll often say, observe the Sabbath, uh, much in the way that you would observe a holiday. Uh, you can't just wake up Christmas morning and enjoy Christmas, right? Like, that's not how it works. None of us, well, maybe a few of you do that. Very few of us approach Christmas that way. We observe it. We plan in advance in order to enhance our experience on that day. It's the same with the Sabbath. And so uh, as a family, we Sabbath on Saturdays or technically sundown Friday night until sundown on Saturday because Sundays are work days for me. Um, and I imagine that most followers of Jesus probably choose to Sabbath on Sundays 
and make the church gathering part of that. But in any case, even for those of you who have varying schedules that change week over week, you have to pick a day of the week on which to observe the Sabbath, and you have to prepare for it in advance. So the day before, on Fridays, as a family, we run errands, we clean the house, sometimes we even make food, we get everything ready for the Sabbath. Then, uh, Friday night at the Decent House, I turn off my phone. And if you've never tried that before, or you don't know how it works, um, there's actually this button on the side, and if you hold it down, you can swipe right. It's this crazy feature that not a lot of people know about. Friday night, the phone goes off. It's away in a drawer for the next 24 hours, which will expose the extent of your addiction. And then we sit down to dinner Friday night, and the Sabbath begins. We actually light candles, which the kids love. And as we light candles, we remember. We remember that God invites us to rest. We remind ourselves that God has promised to take care of us and provide for us as we trust in him. We deliberately mark the Sabbath and we enter the Sabbath as an act of trust, as an act of faith, And that's exactly what it is. We remember that God is God and we are not. We remember that the world will get on just fine without our constant worrying about it. We mark that time. We remind the kids what the Sabbath is for. Guys, for the next 24 hours, God says we don't have to work. Isn't that amazing? Like he, He's given us this time. It's a, it's a gift that we get to receive. He's given us this time to enjoy him and enjoy one another. He even wants us to enjoy his creation and all of the stuff that he's entrusted into our care. He wants us to rest and worship. And the kids love it. I mean, they love lighting the candles because there's fire involved, Uh, but they love the Sabbath day. They know that dad isn't going to work on the Sabbath and we're going to enjoy God and we're going to enjoy one another. We rest, we play, we slow down, we connect, we eat good food. We tune our hearts and minds toward God and his goodness. And they look forward to it all week long. After lighting the candles on Friday night, we enjoy dinner together, and then it's Friday night movie night, which to some extent is really just a chance for my wife and I to take a deep breath while the kids are occupied, Uh, but it's another event that the kids look forward to all week long. Hey, when is Friday night movie night? When is the Sabbath? Hey, five more days, three more days. Sometimes it's six. It's like the Sabbath was yesterday. Like we don't have two in a row, but then we count down. Hey, three more days, one more day. We're almost there. It's on 
the horizon, and then we enjoy it together. Then uh, Saturday morning, we sleep in as long as the kids will let us, and then we spend an entire day resting in God. And because our kids are four, three, and one, we have actually chosen to break down our Sabbath day into thirds. And so typically what we do, we wake up Saturday morning, the first third of the day we spend together as a family. Maybe we eat a fun breakfast and then we go outside and play or whatever it might be. Uh, For the second third of the day, uh, I watch the kids while my wife has time to herself. And the final third of the day, my wife watches the kids while I have time to myself. I try to explain to the kids that they should change their own diapers on the Sabbath day and it went right over their heads. Um, They seem to be just as needy on the Sabbath day as they are on any other day. So we break our day into thirds. Uh, And the whole day from start to finish is rest and worship, but that third when I'm alone is absolutely vital to me. It is the most exciting three hours of my entire life week. It is holy ground. And I usually spend the first hour of that three or more uh, taking a guilt-free nap. And those of you who are parents know what I mean by guilt-free, meaning it doesn't matter what goes on in the rest of the house. It doesn't matter what blows up with the kids. As long as nobody needs to go to the emergency room, like, I I get to nap. I have permission from God and my wife, I won't say which is more important, to rest. And so I do. I say, I have have this one three-hour block during my week. I'm going to start with just rest, just trusting in God. Um, After that, I'll often um, get outside, maybe go for a walk or a run or a bike ride or go golfing or whatever it is that helps me enjoy God and his creation. Um, Oftentimes, especially if the weather's bad, I'll um, go to a coffee shop and and read my favorite book uh, and, and just enjoy who God is and what he's given us. And of all the spiritual practice, practices that we will unpack in this series, there is nothing that comes close to being as exciting or life-giving for me as the Sabbath. It is absolutely beautiful. I wouldn't trade it for the world. For us, this isn't legalism. It's wisdom. This is not law. It's life. When we skip the Sabbath, we don't feel a hint of religious guilt. But when we miss the Sabbath, we miss it. Our our whole week gets thrown off. Our our pace, our rhythm, our stress levels, our, our rest, our anxiety, all of it gets thrown off. And so we aim to practice this day in, or week in and week out. We find this time, we receive this invitation 
to relax and rest and unwind and to rest in God as an act of faith, as an act of trust. When we miss the Sabbath, we miss an opportunity to enjoy God and one another, to to enjoy everything that he's blessed us with. We miss rest and restoration. To live an unhurried life in our day and age, and even to practice the Sabbath, is somewhat like taking a vow of poverty in earlier centuries. It is scary. It is an act of faith. But there are deeper riches on the other side. There is life in this day. How fitting that Jesus was always healing people on the Sabbath. It is a day for healing, for rest, for restoration. God bless this day. He made it holy. And you can reject the Sabbath and abuse the Sabbath, but eventually it will come for you. Rest will happen to you whether you want it to or not, whether you fight it or not. If you never rest, if you never slow down, if you never Shabbat, if you never stop and cease, eventually you will be overcome by fatigue and tiredness and anxiety and burnout and even physical sickness. And you'll crash because this rhythm is embedded in the fabric of the universe. Either you Shabbat, you slow down, you stop, you trust in God and delight in him, or the universe will slow you down. The choice is yours. You can embrace the Sabbath as the foundation of joy and restoration and an unhurried life, or you can waste the same amount of time in anxiety and sick time and burnout. But either way, rest will come for you. We'll end with this. Our one-year-old takes a regular morning nap every day, same time. But a few days ago, he decided to skip that morning nap. Uh, He fought it. He refused to sleep. He rejected it, and he tried to go on with his day. But an hour later, while eating a snack, rest came for him. And this is the result. And I saw him. Oh, I thought we had a picture. There he is, mid-snack. And and I saw him passed out like this in, in the chair. And I thought, this is us. Like, this is us fighting our way past the times when we're supposed to rest, only to crash at the most inopportune of times. This, this is some of us Wednesday afternoon in our cubicle. And the only reason you don't look like that is because someone invented coffee, right? But on the inside, you're, you're crashing. It's been weeks without a It's been months, maybe years 
without a Sabbath. And so we crash. Brothers and sisters, the Sabbath is way more fun. It is so much better than burnout and anxiety and sick time and fatigue and the heavy yoke that is life at 90 miles an hour. Instead, in the midst of a world that is losing its mind, we hear the words of Jesus spoken over our lives. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We'll end with this. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of that same passage. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the invitation. Here's to life with an easy yoke. Let's pray. Thank you.